Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. All right, everyone. Well, welcome into the Apex Hour this week. For those of you who might be listening live, I'm sorry that I missed you last week. I was a little bit under the weather, but I am so excited to be back. Uh, we are here on a beautiful Thursday afternoon again, and we are talking about one of my favorite subjects, which is music. But we are talking about music history, specifically in relation to uh, the emergence of rock and all of the cultural and racial implications and how it all affected each other and how it continues to affect music today. So with that in mind, I'm going to introduce you to my two guests. I have our Apex guests for this week in Michael Bertrand, who is the author of Race, Rock and Elvis. Welcome in, Michael. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lynn. And also my dear friend and colleague, who is the reason why Michael is here, and that is Ryan Paul. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks, Lynn. Happy to be here. So let's start with the story of the connection between you two, because it's kind of a beautiful testament to how scholarship continues to be those ripples in the water. So Ryan, can you tell us how you came to know Michael? Sure. I went to graduate school at uh, Ole Miss, the University of Mississippi, and I finished my coursework and spent some time writing. And he he was not a professor there at the time. I came back after a year, and he, as I was finishing and, and editing my work, my other graduate committee member said, you have to stop what you're doing and read this book that just came out. And it was Race, Rock, and Elvis. Because when I went to Ole Miss the fir- early my advisor said, you realize studying rock and roll history is not, you're going to be a pariah in the historical community. No one thinks that's relevant. But then he wrote this book, this groundbreaking book on race, rock and Elvis. And the beautiful part was by the time I got back, he was a faculty member at Ole Miss. So I met him at a bookstore in in Oxford and uh, it just took off from there. And he was nothing but supportive and thoughtful. And it was amazing how the things he was talking about were grounded in a massive amount of history and it was just cool. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Michael, how did you come to get involved in this work? I mean, you probably loved listening to rock growing up. Is that where it started for you? Yeah, no, actually my um, parents, uh, my mother particularly was a huge Elvis fan. Um, And so she had a lot of Elvis records, uh, albums and everything else. And so uh, I got a taste of that through her. And then just music in general in my family, we always, um, music was always around. Um, but the Elvis thing really took off when, uh, when Elvis died. Mm. And it seemed as if um, it was almost like a member of our family had died, the way that some family members were reacting. Wow. And uh, it was really curious for me. So I, I, um, I just thought it was fascinating. Right. And I wanted to find out why why that was so that's what kind of got me into 
understanding the Elvis Presley phenomenon, I guess. Yeah. Um, and were you always enamored with Elvis's music from the get-go, or is it something you kind of grew into from listening to it in the house? Yeah, I kind of grew into it with my with my folks and stuff, and my mom particularly. I um, because she would she would play it, and not just. She played his older material at the same time that his newer material was coming out. So I was getting a little bit of both. And um, and so, yeah, it, it just grew on me mm-hmm. in terms of understanding, you know, his um, uh, appeal. So, yeah. Yeah. And as you got involved, uh, you know, in scholarship, uh, how how did that how, – how did it translate into a, a career or a scholarly endeavor for you? Well, I when I, I went to um, – to university and my undergraduate degree, and and I was really uh, interested in how no one in my classes, no 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 professor in classes, ever talked about Elvis Presley, even though there were upper division classes on post U.S. history. Right. They didn't do anything with with Elvis or rock and roll uh, or music in general. <laughs> and so I, I just thought that was something was wrong with that. So when I I finally graduated and then. Um, I want to go to graduate school, and um, I sort of made it almost a um, an aspiration to to try to bring that into the scholarship mm. to make that part of the of the story, and so I just hard headed enough, I guess, to where because <laughs> like as um, you know, um, Ryan Ryan says with Pariah, uh, <laughs> I've I met that kind of same resistance as well. Um, but I guess I was just too uh, dense to realize that I couldn't do it. <laughs> so uh, that's where I got started. Oh, that's fantastic. And when you when you got started with the scholarship, were you uh, maybe really focused on the music or was the cultural part and the historical part always appealing to you? Yeah, I think it was always the cultural and the historical part that really um, I, I am a, a very – untalented musician <laughs> amateur musician um and so i uh, i i was not really that uh well versed in the music as a form um but i was interested in the cultural and the historical parts mm-hmm. uh and that part allowed me really try to understand what the what the appeal was in terms of how it affected people right in that way right um so that's the direction that I, I took with that. The music, you know, we mentioned in an earlier uh, lecture today in the in the hall that uh, W.E.B. Du Bois uh, made a comment that he wasn't really a um, um, technician of music, um, but he understood how music affected people. And while I'm not putting myself in the same league as Du Bois, uh, I sort of, that's the direction that I uh, like to follow. Yeah. At the end of your talk today, you had a quote uh, that that was about the importance of stories and about storytelling. And I wondered if you might share with us, um, because because a lot of your work starts to deal with um, particularly race and um, the cracks in the color line that maybe rock and roll w- was able to present. And right. I wonder if you might share with us the, the story of how you started that line of inquisition uh, with with how you came to look at the different things that were happening at the same time? Sure. Um, a, f- a few things, actually, that really affected me. Um, 
I was I was in graduate school, and um, I was assigned to teach a class, and I had never taught before, and um, and so basically it was previewing an Eyes on the Prize episode that dealt with the lynching of Emmett Till, mm-hmm. and um, I'd already decided I was going to do something on 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 rock and roll and Elvis Presley, but I never really defined it. Um, but after I saw this particular episode, um, it showed how Till had been brutalized and, and murdered. Um, it really affected me in a very yeah. significant way. Um, sort of an epiphany, I've described it, because I didn't understand why uh, that sort of brutality could happen uh, in the same time, at the same time in the same space as... Um, uh, a young Elvis Presley was sort of violating some of the same rules uh, in terms of race and sex. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the reason why Emmett Till was lynched right. was because he violated those unwritten rules about race and sex. Right. And here you have Elvis Presley who is is doing the same thing and actually becoming quite popular on a regional level mm-hmm. at the same time, 1955. Um and so I, again, I, I'm really attracted to ironies and, and contradictions, and um, that was a, a major turning point for me. Yeah. With that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. It's a powerful. I mean, a powerful way to start down this path. I think. Yeah. No. It really that that imagery of what what we saw with with young Till in his in his coffin and yeah. um, that has stayed with me forever Mm -hmm. yeah right well history and and ryan i know you are uh, we have two great historians in the room uh this idea that that history is something we we always carry with us we are all historians uh ryan how did you what is your relationship to rock and roll and what what sort of things are you interested in studying in terms of rock and roll history and culture i think it's very interesting to think about rock and roll at least southern rock and roll as a musical style that shouldn't exist. I mean, it, it is really an exercise in contradictions, yeah. right? I think it's... But what do you mean shouldn't exist? Shouldn't exist as a commercial form? Or well, shouldn't, shouldn't exist in the sense that here you have these men and women in the American South who were raised a certain way. Right. They're actively, in many ways, culturally going against their parents. Right, right. Right. I think that we've we've talked about this a little bit in Michael and I, this idea that we think about the music of the civil rights movement, right? The efforts to desegregate. We think about gospel pretty much exclusively, mm-hmm. right? Or these kind mm-hmm. of civil rights anthems. When in reality, rock and roll is doing that. These kids are prepared in many ways to move that needle forward because they're experiencing this music. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to me that people who originally are seen as outliers or oddballs become heroes and hmm. become nationally accepted, right? I mean, you have this kid, Elvis and, and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee, all these other people that uh, that go through their lives being different yeah. and being mocked for their difference. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, they become American, yeah, right? These Southerners become truly what American is. And we can argue it and we can debate whether, you know, Elvis sells out later on and that whole transformational thing. But early on, that early 50s rock and roll stuff coming out of Memphis and other places really is significant because it's enhanced by 
the transmission lines, radio and record players. Right. I mean, it couldn't exist without the culture in which it was born in. Mm-hmm. It, it was of its time. And that's what fascinates me, right? How these things that start regionally, these things that shouldn't exist because they hadn't ever been able to happen before, mm-hmm. all of a sudden change America, right? The gates of history swing on small hinges. Mm-hmm. And what's even more exciting about it is, is that Elvis walks into Sun Studios, has no idea he's going to be Elvis Presley. Often the before is really more critical than the after. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So he goes in thinking one thing and has no idea what's about to happen. We know yeah. because it's all hindsight. But think about what that would be when all of these people come in thinking, I can do something different. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Mike, what do you think about that 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 concept of the before and after with some of these artists? Uh, no, I, I think it's, you, the thing with Elvis before um, – it's, it's difficult to imagine. Um, I think it's difficult to imagine what Elvis. Difficult to imagine for somebody at that time to imagine what Elvis became. Yeah. Um, and I don't think Elvis could have imagined that either. Um, but I want to touch on, if I can, Lynn, yes. something that Ryan said that I think is really important. Um, and he mentioned about uh, the civil rights movement associated with gospel m- music that we always associate gospel music. One of the things that we don't really think about very often is that these same kids, um, um, and not only on the white side, but on the African-American side, those kids were listening to black radio uh, throughout the decade of the 1950s. They were very much influenced by the same thing that was influencing Elvis and other people listening to uh, the radio. And so I think it had a very big impact on creating uh, a sense of uh, um, feeling a respectability about themselves because they listened to those radio shows because those radio shows I think were very important. Many of those shows, the disc jockeys are really, you know, some of them were very flamboyant at different times. Mm. They could be very flamboyant. They had a purpose in doing that. Yeah. But at the same time, these same, the same disc jockeys, many of them were coming out of the school system. They were teachers. They were principals. Uh, they were people that actually got on the radio and were really, uh, uh, preaching, for lack of a better word, uh, an affirmative picture of African-American life. And so I think a lot of those young African-American kids who who basically were Emmett, Till, Emmett Till's generation, and they were very uh, traumatized by the Emmett Till uh, uh, lynching, I think they were also listening to those same radio shows. And they were getting a whole different sense also of black life that was now being broadcast and so i think as, as ryan said i think it made a big impact in so many ways that transmission of that radio really affected every because everyone could listen to radio and everyone yeah. could get out of it something different or something the same or it could influence them it had this deep influence and and i think i don't know if this is true as well but also uh, once you had the radio it didn't cost anything, so you you didn't have to buy all the records. You could hear what was coming and what was new. Yeah, and if I could, there's one sort of ambivalent thing about this, too, is that the radio, it was really good in terms of bringing people together. But it also did create or continue a social distancing Oh, that you could actually be very much into rhythm and blues or African-American music. And sometimes um, the radio is as far as you went. 
mm, with it. I see. And I also think that in many ways, um, rock and roll and it it was I think revolutionary in so many ways. Unfortunately, I I, I don't think it created a dialogue. Oh, interesting. Right. That, okay. That could have actually brought about political change. Mm. Um, I think it did bring about cultural change, but it didn't translate into actual political change, at least a lot for a lot of these, a lot of these white listeners. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think it didn't get there. Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe, I mean, we, of course, we have been talking a lot about music as, as cultural change and the power it has as cultural change. So do you believe that music has the capability to assist with political change? Yeah, I think it can. I think it actually did here. Uh, I think if this is what fascinates me, and you can look at different polls and, and different numbers and things, polling. Um, but if you look back at, at polling that was done in terms of uh, the Gallup poll or the Harris polls at that time, and asking the questions in 1961, 1962, um, asking white respondents about their feelings about what do you think about desegregation of transportation lines? You know, what do you feel about de um, desegregation of schools? These respondents who were responding in like 1962, 63, were pretty much for that, mm. that they were not against it at all. Now, these people, when they were, when they were polled, were, were in their late 20s, mid to late 20s. And so that's the generation of people that basically grew up with rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Right. And so they've developed, I think, uh, again, from what the polls that are more political in nature, I guess, they show that this, this age group seems to have been affected, you know, and that they were not necessarily um, opposed to the changes that were being brought by the civil rights movement. Now, it's also interesting that this same generation uh, perhaps is also going to be voting for George Wallace in 1968. Mm. But I think what we need to do is, is not start and stop with that question and just say, okay, well, they must have been racist. I think what we need to look at is what happened between 1962, 1963, and 1968? Mm. Or what did, they what did this group of people perceive was happening and why did they change? Because we do see people that obviously as teenagers looked like they were in love with Clyde McFadder, Ruth Brown, and right. Laverne Baker. Right. Um, but yet in 1968, they're voting for George Wallace. Um, I think it's more complicated than just saying, well, they liked the music, but that was it. Right. I think we can also look at what happened between those times. What do you think, or both of you? Well, you probably both have some thoughts about that. What did happen? Well, I think that <clears throat> one of the exciting things about rock and roll is it's one of the truly first generational right. musics, right? Right, right, right? Because of its portability. So you can, in the old days, if I'm a radio programmer, radios are in the house, right? They're mm -hmm. a piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. Now they're in my car. They're portable. I can shut my door and listen to whatever I want. It's not my parents' music anymore. Right. So, so portability in rock and roll begins this generational change. And, and that's a pushback from other generations. You know, they push back to see 
what that's the way. And, and we do that today, right? You bring your kids into the car, go visit grandma. They put in their headphones and they're listening to something very different than what you're listening to in the car. And I think things like Vietnam yeah. are certainly there. I think access to education. I think that uh, certain kinds of media that's going to get people thinking a certain way or another, certainly political, the civil rights movement is happening there. Lyndon Johnson and the Voting Rights Act. Go ahead, yep. Michael. Yeah, no, I think I think in some ways it's complicated. I mean, not, I'm sorry, in most ways it's complicated. I think a lot of um, what happens, I think, with with Elvis's um, that that group, um, working class, um, they've basically through this period of um, after World War II, they have started to succeed in terms of um, um, prosperity. They're reaching up into the middle class. Uh, but I think at the same time, um, I think they feel somewhat alienated by some of the issues that are exploding in the 1960s. And I think, you know, just because you may be progressive in one area doesn't necessarily mean you're progressive in everything that you think about. And so I, I think that, you know, um, some of these things really upset people in terms of Vietnam and the protest against Vietnam. I mean, they, they were they were of the uh, the g- previous generation with Vietnam protests, and so um, I think that upset them. I think also the marginalization, uh, you know, the same thing that we see people like George Wallace exploit. They're exploiting the marginalization of working class white Southerners, and so I think all this comes into play as well that. You know, the one thing about popular music, and I, I, I think popular music is really important, but I think history is multi-causal. I don't think it's just one cause of things that, that basically changes everything. Um, I think we also have a situation of structural uh, discrimination in this country that has been there for so long that, you know, uh, all of these things play into it. Right. And so, uh, again, I think if if the popular music you know, it's it's important, very important. Yeah. But I think it's it's one of many factors that's important. Yeah. Right. And let's not forget the challenges of time, right? Think about by 1968, Elvis has become mainstream, right? Has kind of sold yeah. out, if you will. Yeah. Buddy Holly's dead. Richie Valens is dead. Chuck Berry's in jail, <laughs> right? Johnny Cash has gone country. Jerry Lee Lewis is full of weird sexual marital things. I mean, all of these people that the, the originators, little Richard has gone to the, to the cloth, yeah. right? All of these originators of, of what we would consider right, to be right, right. The, the pioneers of rock and roll have generationally been transformed either in the next life or have chosen something else. Yeah. Interesting. That's interesting to look at it that way. I'm at, you know, when you start listing all of those things that happened in that time, it's fascinating. Well, we can't talk about music without listening to some music. And Michael, I asked you for some of your very, very favorite songs, songs you would never turn off. And we're going to start with, um, you know, probably one that a lot of people feel the same way about, which is What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Tell me why that song is so meaningful to you. It really, it really um, is the the melody is one thing and the words, uh, the message, I think, uh, that we could all come together that eventually um, things will get better. I love it. Well, we're going to listen to it. This is What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, KSU Youth, under 91.1. 
see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white. The bright, blessed day, the dark, sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of the rainbow. So pretty in the sky Are also on the faces Of people going by I see friends shaking hands Saying how do you do They're really saying I love you I hear babies cry I watch them grow Learn much more than I never knew, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. I mean, how can you not feel great hearing that? That's the very famous uh, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong. Um, this is KSU Youth under 91.1. This is the Apex Hour. Uh, as always, if you're interested in the music that you hear on the Apex Hour, there is an open Spotify playlist on our website, which is scu.edu slash Apex. You could go to the podcast tab. You can find out all of our past episodes on the podcast, but also you'll find the open playlist, which is played on the Apex Hour. And it's such a wide range of music, everything from world music to rock to anything you can possibly think of. So enjoy that. I am joined in the studio by Michael Bertrand and Ryan Paul, and we are talking about rock music and pop culture. And, you know, as we listen to the song, the song is... Uh, what a wonderful world, you know, and, and I think that the sentiment of the coming together of humanity and coming together of the world is, is sort of a great place to launch the next part of our conversation. Michael, you said at one point in our, your visit that humanity comes together through pop culture. And I wondered if you might uh, go off on that for a bit, expand on that uh, in your belief system, and then, and let's then get Ryan in on this as well. Okay, yeah, no, I think that, um, and again, that's not original to me. I thought that uh, Bell Hooks, the writer who just passed away uh, this previous fall, uh, she made it part of her career, her writing career, where she she wrote tons of stuff. Um, she basically believed that uh, popular culture and music was where people came together. The majority of people came together. And 
what I've taken from that is that as scholars, as historians, um, I, I guess our our perspective is that if we want to reach those people, um, that's where we need to go mm. is popular music. And, and and to basically um, you know take it from there, and I think Ryan has some things too with um, the same kind of theme with that. Yeah, I think that we <coughs> excuse me that popular music is like the town square, right? Mm, if you think I about that. if you think about Andy Griffith, right? What do you do at the town square? You shop, you, you go to the barbershop to to converse, you learn the gossip. I mean, this is the commonality that we all have. And I think that, I mean, the three of us here, it's the same thing, right? We approach music in a different way. And and I think that this is the starting point, right? This is the, the nexus that connects us. If we can all meet to do this here, we can move further out, right? This is something that we all understand. Right. We all know how it feels to enjoy a good song. And we all know what it's like to to be comforted in those ways and it, it really opens up the human condition and and, and and popular culture and is really critical to understand why we do what we do as a group well but what i mean that all sounds wonderful right but what does that mean like how do we do that how how does that i mean i know we can start looking at historical con look at things and look at patterns but how does that translate to now tell me more well if i could riff on what Ryan said, um, go back to what we said earlier in this broadcast about the stories. Um, and it's basically what we talked about earlier today. In, 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 uh, the stories, Charlie Parker, um, if I can relate that anecdote, where he was in a, in a Harlem cafe listening to a jukebox. He had plugged in some country music. And some of his friends who were there, who were jazz musicians, basically came to him and said, gosh, that's awful stuff. Why do you listen to that? Why? What's the, you know? And he, he stopped him and he said, no. He goes, listen to the stories. You know, it's a common cultural reservoir that we're talking about between black and white. And it's like, you know, basically if we could come together and listen to those stories, uh, I think that we can begin to imagine that we could dialogue with those stories. Mm. If we can imagine uh, and I think that's what happens with rock and roll. I think when you have someone like an Elvis Presley listening to an Arthur Crudup and basically saying something to the effect, you know, I wish that I could feel what Arthur feels. Well, I think you're getting to a point where here's a guy, and again, as Ryan said earlier in terms of this, you're, they're raised in this culture where, you know, you never think about crossover. You never think about crossover. In terms of black and white, in the in the, in this in this era of the yeah, South, in this time, yeah. But now you have, you know, here's a kid saying, "If I could just feel what what Arthur felt," you know, mm -hmm. singing that. To me, that takes a stretch that was not available to generations earlier. They're taking a stretch that they're listening to the stories, but as they're listening to them, they realize, I think we have something in common there. <laughs> And so they can imagine that actually we can dialogue together, mm. you know, that we can actually communicate with each other on a similar topic. And I think the same thing with listening to, to these radio shows with rhythm and blues. I mean, you got these kids listening to rhythm and blues, and these kids are relating to this. Mm -hmm. They're taking this music 
and it's relating to their own lives. Mm-hmm. And so again, going back to what we said earlier, that is just so much out of, that's why I think what Ryan's talking about, this should never have happened. Right. This whole rock and roll explosion thing should never have happened because, you know, never, I don't think ever before, because you have a white <laughs> Southerner, say in 1920 or 1930 or 1890, imagine what it would be like to be a black man. Yeah. Can, can you imagine that, Ryan? No. no. Could they yeah. have? And that's what this forces us to do, right? It forces us to recognize common humanity. Right. Because these two cultures had been so, had been based upon the idea that you are not human. Mm-hmm. Whether it's even poor whites or blacks, but there, there is a, you are not like me. Right. And if we share the common cultural reservoir, what rock and roll does is it allows us to begin to recognize the humanity in each other. And once I can recognize you as a human being at the basic level and hear your story, then I can begin to have the dialogue and have the understanding. And that's why it matters is because it allows us to recognize common core humanity in all of us. So let me ask you this. Do you think that music now can do that or is it commercialized now beyond the point where, where it still has that purity or that connection to storytelling? I mean, it's complex, right? The, this, this time the, the music seems very cl- close, very, very pure, you know, but I wonder can can this be a tool that can we learn from history and use this now or is, are we just so commercialized are we so about the business of it all see i don't think the business i i understand the business is the issue and i think you know the music industry but i also think the music industry whatever that is it, yeah they don't create anything right right they actually produce it and mass distribute it but the people that actually create it are the people on the streets. And so they create some. That's what happened with rock and roll. I mean, the music industry didn't create rock and roll. You know, that was coming from, from, from people. Right, you know? right. And so they marketed it and they, you know, exploited it to whatever else. And so, yeah, I do think there's a possibility because even with the commercial, and again, that does distort everything. But I do think that there is always that potential because that music comes from that common humanity. It comes from people who are trying to express themselves in a way that, you know, they're not available. Any other avenues are not available to them. And so they express themselves the way they can. Now, the music industry comes in and says, hey, that'll sell. So we'll, right. we'll take it. But that's not where it starts. Right, right. It starts with people. Right. And unlike any other time now, we have the ability to create without that music industry, right? Think of YouTube. I mean, all, all of the, the musicians that you know, right. right, that you've played on this show are just that are created in ways that without that music industry and we're allowed, we're able to distribute, uh, distribute it better. Mm-hmm. And it really creates this much more global idea of who we are. Do you think that as consumers of music, we are different now? Than then, we have a lot more choices. Yeah, and how how does that play into this conversation? Does it? I wonder. I I think we I think we cannot take in isolation any kind of historical isolation. Um, I think you have to understand that there are many other factors going on. So I, I do think that 
we are different because the times are different. Right. The, the times have changed. And there are a lot of things that um, are going on that um, we have a, a situation, I think, in the country where a certain segment of people do not understand where another segment are coming from. Mm-hmm. And I think even listening to the music, for some people, it will never cross that bridge or it'll take a while to cross that bridge. Um, and so I, I think... You know, we always have to look at the music as reflective of of, of the environment that produces it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's rockabilly, rock and roll, or hip hop, we have to. You know, people are saying things about their condition, um, and it, it, we have to reach across a bridge to get people to see that. Um, and and so, the music is important. Uh, but it, it takes a lot yeah, to, right. to, to cross. Right, right. I think it's time for another song. Okay. So yeah. the second one, well, I mean, a change is going to come. Mm. I mean, <laughs> how apropos yes. is that uh, by Sam Cooke? Will you tell us a little bit about why this song is on the list today? Yeah, no, this is, uh, when you ask, this is the first song that comes to mind. And um, as I mentioned to you off, off the radio, but... Um, if you come to my office on the campus uh, in, at school, you'll find um, uh, posters of Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come. And I'm really moved by the by, by Sam Cooke uh, because of the pain that he expresses within that song, uh, but also at the same time, the hope as well um, that that pain will be hopefully eradicated. Um, so yeah, it, it encompasses that whole situation i think yeah all right well this is a change is gonna come by sam cook and once again this as always this is ksu thunder 91.1 i was born by the river in a little tent just like the river I've been running ever since. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid. Die. I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Keep telling me don't hang around It's been a long, a long time coming But I know a change gonna come Oh, yes it will Then I go to my 
All right. Well, welcome back, everyone. Uh, this is KSU Youth under 91.1. This is the Apex Hour. I am Lynn Vartan. That song was A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. I am joined by two historians who I am so enjoying getting into it with, Ryan Paul and Michael Bertrand. And we're talking about the emergence of rock and roll and all the different cultural and um uh, topics regarding race and diversity that have that uh, that really contributed to um, that really unique and special time in history. And Michael, one of the things I'd love to ask you about is, you know, you you have done so much research, and it has just been so incredible to hear your stories and uh, in your talk today. And I just wondered, I know you've worked with Elvis. I mean, you, you've studied Elvis quite a bit, and a lot of the other um, great artists of the time. I wonder if there's any story that maybe is unique that stands out to you as uh, being particularly memorable. Yeah, Lynn. Actually, there's a. Um, uh, the thing with Elvis is he's pretty controversial, as most yeah. people realize. Um, one of the things that I found when, when I would speak to groups um, and about Elvis and about rock and roll and change, um, if I had any, any African-American participants in the audience, uh, often they would ask me, they would come up to me after or even during, and they would ask me about, um, have you ever heard that Elvis said at one time, that the only things that Negroes can do for me is to shine my shoes and buy my records. And initially, I had not heard of that. When I started doing this, I had not. And I asked them, well, where did you hear that? And they would say, well, my cousin told me, or my uncle told me, or somebody told me. And I was like, what, you know, how did they know? Well, I think somebody told them. And I was like, okay. And so, it was intriguing to me, and it was actually also problematic because if it was true that Elvis had said that, then I would I would have some really d- difficult times, you know, with what I'm what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Um, and so I started tracking it down, trying to track it down. How did you do that? Well, I, I you know, one of the things I figured if you're if you're going to try to understand how African Americans felt about Elvis Presley, then you need to go to the source of where African Americans were expressing themselves. And so uh, I started looking at black media, uh, particularly from, uh, again, the 1950s, 1960s, particularly the, the um, print um, media. And I looked through African-American newspapers. I looked through uh, uh, magazines, and I just could not find it. And I said, it has to be here somewhere. And I had no, 
There was no indication as to what the date would have been. Right. People just said, Elvis said this. And I'm like, when could he have said this? And so I, you know, I just started continuing to look. And so um, I, I went to uh, the Library of Congress um, and I looked through black periodicals they had there. And I was looking for one particular, because I looked at so many of them and I figured there was this one specific one that I could not find. And it was called sepia. And I went to the Library of Congress, and I was excited because they had it listed in their card catalog. Now, the Library of Congress, for me, I don't know if Ryan's been there, but the Library of Congress, for me, is like a church. <laughs> when you walk into that main reading room, it's like, my gosh, you know? Yeah. And so I went up, took my little card, brought it up to the person, and I turned it in and wanted sepia, I wanted the issues, you know, whatever. And they're supposed to have had the whole thing. So look. About an hour later, the guy comes back to my little desk up there and he says, uh, has a little card and it says, um, it seems to be missing. I'm like, missing? <laughs> How could it be missing from the Library of Congress? And so anyway, so I said, you know, I can't believe this. So I ended up going over to Howard, which is also in D.C., and looking there. And they had some issues, but not everything. And so I get on the Internet, you know, and this is, you know, when the Internet's just sort of, well, I don't want to say taking off. It's been a while. But I wrote in to a HNET thing, HSouth, <laughs> and I put an SOS. I said, I'm looking for this thing called sepia. And I said, I went, I went to the Library of Congress, and, you know, it was supposed to be there, but it wasn't there, and it was like whatever. So I actually had this really interesting response from George Tyndall. And George Tyndall is like a really prominent Southern historian. He was located at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's recently passed. He writes in and he says, oh, yeah, sepia. He goes, you know, the Library of Congress has it. And I just explained to my friend my thing. <laughs> it's missing. Anyway, and that was funny because I actually later met George Tyndall in person and we developed a relationship. But um, I actually had somebody else write in. And this other person wrote in and said, actually, I'm a freelance I'm a freelance researcher, and I do research. He goes, I'm pretty sure I was in Chicago, and I was at the, uh, the Woodson Public Library, and I could have sworn that I saw it there. I will go up there for you. You know, I'll do it for a fee. And so I said, I wrote back and said, thank you. I'm getting myself over there myself. There ain't no way that I'm not going to go up there myself and find it. Wow. So I took off the next day. I contacted him, and I said, I'm, I'm coming over. And uh, so I went through there, and they actually had uh the whole set wow. of sepia and, and, and basically bound versions. And I had to go through it all. And I'll be doggone, I found it in uh, March of 1957. It was an issue with a, a picture of Duke Ellington on the cover, but on the top they had, how do Negroes feel about Elvis Presley? And I'm like, this got to be it. And so I went in there, and you know, and, um, it's actually a great repository it's like probably the biggest repository of popular materials in African-American music and culture Wow! Uh, at the Woodson branch. And so I went through it, and sure enough, it's in there. And in the first part of the story, it's basically saying, you know, these, these, um, these well, sepia, first of all, is uh, owned by, uh, um, it was owned by a white man in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. And it was basically... Um, uh, trying to do a copy of uh, um, the uh, jet and all these. And so it was not a really good 
quality publication. I see. And so I looked at it, and it, it basically it basically had a thing starting off that, well, we went out on the street, and we asked people what they thought about Elvis Presley. And doing research on sepia, I found out they had no budget. They had nothing. They basically went out on the street in Fort Worth. They went basically across the street. They said, you know, this. Okay. And so they say that, that, well, uh, I heard that Elvis said this on the Ed Murrow show. Elvis said, the only thing Negroes can do for me is buy my shoes and shine my records. Or opposite. Other Sorry. way around. Yeah. Sorry, Sorry about that. <laughs> um, and I heard on Edward R. Murrow. So the article said that someone heard that yeah. he had said The that. person they interviewed in the street right. said that they had heard right. that it was on the Edward R. Murrow show, who was very popular at the time. Um, I did research on that. There was no Edward R. Murrow show that Elvis appeared on. Um, he wanted Elvis to appear. Colonel Tom Parker, Elvis's manager, wanted some huge fee that Murrow said, well, we don't we don't pay fees to be on our show. He goes, well, then Elvis doesn't appear on your show. He never did. He so never somebody, did. other guy in the same interview says, well, I think he said it when he was in Boston. I think I heard he was in Boston. And so I traced that down too. He had never been in Boston at that time. Wow. Right? And so Jet Magazine, so they published it. Um, and the big thing they said was, basically one person they interviewed, well, what do you expect you know, for anybody like this who basically this cat was born in Tupelo, Mississippi. I mean, what else do you think? Of course he would have said it. And that's what they said in this story. So then you have Jet comes out, and they do their research on this because they want to find out where this came from. And so they trace it, and the the editor of it, um, uh, Robinson, um, I think Eugene Robinson, actually got an interview with Elvis in Hollywood while he was recording, while he was uh, filming Jailhouse Rock. And again, Colonel Parker never let anybody get close to Elvis. But because this was such a big issue, he didn't interview him. You know, Elvis said, I never said it. People that know me know they wouldn't have said it. They brought up all these other people, (coughs) African-American groups and stuff. I don't think he said that. I don't believe he said that. Um, But the rumor got started. Wow. And even even though Jet Magazine ran that whole feature saying that we don't think he ever said this. He never said it. Now, to make the story even more complicated, I actually found in the Norfolk Journal, a newspaper, African-American newspaper, actually, they were the ones who originated this in February of 1957 because some kids from a high school basically started calling the the newspaper office saying we heard that elvis presley said blah 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 oh my gosh and so this newspaper the norfolk journal was the biggest selling newspaper in the entire southeast for the african-american population and the editor there was a very prominent african-american man who came out and said you know i'm not for elvis presley i'm not against elvis presley but i'm against anybody that slanders anybody else and he goes i'm telling you now there's no evidence that Elvis Presley ever said that. Wow. So, but today, you know, you talk to people today even, and they will continue to say, well, somebody told me this and that, and they still believe that. Uh, but it was a great research project for me. I even got on the phone, and I told you it was a Fort Worth guy that owned it. Um, I called his home. I found the You number. found the, the guy? I found the guy. Well, not quite. 
I called, and this lady answers, and I asked if I could speak to her husband. She says, my husband died. I said, oh, well, I'm calling about sepia. Don't ever call me again. I said, okay, wow. sorry. <laughs> so she wouldn't talk to me. No. So, but uh, well, that story is fantastic on so many levels. I mean, first, what you went through as a researcher to track it down, the story itself, and I mean, all those threads—that's yeah, amazing. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. No, no, thank you for having me share it. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Well, we—I mean, this has just been so much fun. But unfortunately, we're already out of time, and uh, I just have my last question that I always ask all of my guests. And that question is, um, what's turning you on this week, you know, and it could be anything, it could be uh, a favorite song, it could be a favorite food, it could be a movie, it could be a TV show, it could be anything. It's just more of just a fun personal question. So Ryan knows about this question. So I'm going to ask you first, and then we'll go to Michael. So Ryan, what's turning you on this week? What's turning me on this week is I am doing my research and preparation for a study abroad that I'm doing with Patrick Clark and Mike Maurer, oh, how World cool. War II in aviation. Oh, cool. So I've been fully immersed in the bomber culture, the B-17. Wow. And so I'm oh, deeply involved in a book called Masters of the Air. Nice. And did you know that the first blood spilt by American aviation bomber guys in World War II was because of a pigeon? I did no. not know that. Well, not death, but but that's the first oh, yeah. pigeon hit the glass. And that's in that book. Oh, yeah. Okay, and tell me the title one more Masters time. Masters of the Air by Donald Miller. Huh. That's a cool one. Yeah, Thank you that for that. Yeah. Michael, what's turning you on this week? My visit to Southern Utah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Uh, no, this, this, this has been a great week for me, and I really appreciate inviting me over, uh, all of y'all. And um, I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, it's been a great experience. I'll never forget Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be here. We will look forward to the next time. I hope that that happens soon. I hope so. I really do. Well, with that, we'll sign off for this week. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time on our little show, The Apex Hour. Thanks so much for listening to The Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.